please remain standing now for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture comes from Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids can head to kids program with Paul and Kara if that's what you're waiting to do. Uh, a man named Anthony Ray Hinton was uh, convicted of double homicide in 1985 in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Hinton was a resident of the county, and um, Anthony R. Hinton was released from prison in 2015. He was sentenced to death row for 28 years for two murders that he did not commit. During the presentation of evidence in his trial, there was no incriminating evidence. There was no circumstantial evidence. And in fact, evidence presented in his favor, including a Loctite alibi about where he was the night and the time that the murders happened, were not heeded. His defense counsel presented to him by the state of Alabama is on record as saying this, all of y'all blacks always say you didn't do something. This was the man who was tasked with defending him. No fingerprints. No eyewitnesses, no hard evidence of any kind. In fact, forensic evidence, which was available in 2015, released him and abdicated him of his sentence. He was in solitary confinement for nearly three decades, about which he wrote, There was a time I thought I'd never see the sun again. Anthony Ray Hinton wrote a book, I got to read it a few years ago, called The Sun Does Shine. And upon his release, he makes this statement, the state of Alabama could take my freedom, the state of Alabama could take my future, the state of Alabama could never take my joy. He very publicly and famously forgave all of those responsible for putting him in prison for all, the, all of those years. Forgiveness. It's what our parable is about today, it's what we'll talk about, it's the idea that Jesus introduces and so our scene begins like this, Matthew 18, verse 21, then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? 
And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Peter's like the, like the ringleader of the group. Um, he, he's the one who they kind of pushed forward. Like, I think they all had this question, the disciples, and they're like, man, how many times should we forgive? Like, Peter, you go ask him. He likes you best. Go, 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 go. And so Peter kind of stumbles up to Jesus and is like, hey, Jesus, what, like, what if I, like, what if I forgave seven times? You'd be pretty impressed with that, right? And in Peter's mind, and in all the disciples' mind, this was very impressive. Because for a Jew, the frequency of forgiveness was limited. Like Peter thinks in his mind he's going above and beyond the call of duty here. Like several rabbis throughout the Jewish history and tradition taught that there was a limit on forgiveness. This is from uh, the rabbi Yoma. If a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time he is forgiven. The fourth time he is not forgiven. And so there's an assumed limit. You can hear it in the way Peter phrases it. How many times must I forgive? And Peter thinks he's going already above and beyond. I'm, I'm going beyond the three required. I'm going all the way to seven, Jesus. Aren't you proud of me? And he kind of leans down waiting for Jesus to pat him on the head and say, good job. And Jesus, Jesus says, I tell you not seven times. And you got to think Peter's got this sigh of relief like, Oh, okay, good. I was, I was worried you were going to say more than three, but now that you're saying it's not seven, I'm just really glad. I was worried I'd, I'd have to forgive more than I really wanted to. And Jesus says, no, 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 not seven times, 77 times. And some of our translations say 70 times seven, and it really doesn't matter what the number is. Like, we're not supposed to read this passage and get out a scratch pad and do the arithmetic on the side and be like, okay, that's the number. Circle it, put on a post-it note, put on your mirror in the morning, like, God loves me so much and also forgive this amount of time. Like, that's not the point of the passage. Jesus is not concerned with a petty forgiveness that calculates how many offenses can be disregarded before retaliation becomes acceptable. For Jesus, forgiveness is wholehearted and constant. The, the very literal words that Jesus uses are far from that, far from your seven times. There's no satisfactory line of conduct for the believer to be found in the path of calculating the number of offenses. The number doesn't matter because there's not a forgiveness formula for Jesus. It's instead a chosen course, a way of life, an expected attitude no matter the action committed against you. Peter questions Jesus and Jesus' answer says it all. Here's how Wearsby phrases it in his commentary. If you're still counting how many times you've forgiven someone, you're not really forgiving them at all. You're simply postponing revenge. <laughs> I like that. Seventy times seven is a typical bit of Jesus teasing. And what he means, of course, is don't even think about counting against us. We continue to sin against others. We are constantly confronted with situations in which forgiveness is needed. Hope all of you got one of these on your way in today. If you got one, you can pull it out. If you didn't get one and you'd like to play along, just raise your hand. We've got some people who can bring one to you if you didn't get one. If you think you're too cool for this, <clears throat> you're not, so go ahead and pull it out. Here's what I want you to do. Uh, these are little garden signs, and on one side, I just want you to write your name. As we began this series called Broadcast, we began with the parable of the sower, the parable of the sower is Jesus is telling a parable about his parables, and while the term broadcast is technological for us, 
it would have been agricultural for those in the first century. The idea of broadcasting was what the parable of the sower is. A man reached his hand into his bag of seed and broadcast it all over all different types of soil. And so we've kind of used this analogy to trace it through these parables of Jesus, and we begin with the seed, and then Dusty preached a message on the firm foundation of Jesus, that the seed takes root and it finds good footing in good soil, and then it begins to sprout, and it looks like the way that we are called to, just as Jesus has, pursue the one, whether that's the lost sheep or coin or the lost sons, that Jesus is saying, you must show compassion on them. And now we, we come to this next stage of the growth of the seed of the kingdom, which is grow. Seed, root, sprout, grow. And we'll finish with bloom next week. And so here's what we're, we're going to do today. On one side, you just need to write your name. And, and what we're going to say today is that, that this, is a, this is a sign that says God's kingdom is, is growing here. It's taken root in my heart. It's beginning to show fruit. It's beginning to grow and, and manifest itself in all different ways. And so on one side is your name, but on the other side, I want you to write the name of someone that you need to forgive. And, and what I hope you'll do is take this seriously. Like, don't just write coach who took his shirt off and jumped up on the scorer's table and waved it over his head yesterday, right? That guy's a punk, but just leave that one alone, okay? Like some, someone that you really need to forgive. Someone who maybe you've been holding on to the wound for a long time. It's it's maybe the friend in high school who made fun of the way that you look, and it has shaped the way you think about yourself ever since. Maybe it's the coach who treated you unfairly, and that perspective has impacted your self-worth to this day. Maybe it's the cousin who molested you. Maybe it's the dad who abandoned you. Maybe it's, it's the boss who belittled you. Maybe it's the employee who stole money from you. Maybe it's the brother whose shadow you could never live out from under. Maybe it's the person who harmed your child. Maybe it's the coworker who was supposed to have your back. Whoever it is, there's a person that you need to forgive. So what I want you to do is write those two names, yours and theirs, and I just want you to hold this through the sermon. Now, if you're a note taker, be very careful because this can function as a shank, and I don't want you to poke your neighbor, okay? Just hold this in an appropriate place. I want you to hold on to it as we think about this parable of Jesus and what needs to grow in us as we become kingdom people. Jesus says about this parable, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, the, the term there, the Greek term is talent, was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. There's an interesting term here. It says that the servant was brought to him. It indicates that he was trying to avoid this moment. He didn't want the audience with the king because he knew what was waiting for him. He knew about his outstanding debt and he knew the kind of consequence that came along with not paying back this kind of man. Now, what most scholars would say is that the only possible way that someone could have this amount of debt was doing something called tax farming. It was some sort of tax loan in which an official that represented the king in some capacity would bid for the rights to tax a certain group of people. And so what likely is taking place here is this man had gone and gained an audience with the king and said, 
I will owe you this amount of money. You confront me that money, and I will go and tax all of these people, and I'll repay you with interest. Whatever the case for this outrageous amount of debt, the point is that the venture had failed. And any attempt that he had tried to make on his own proved fruitless. Now, this parable isn't super hard to interpret. We are all the man who owed the king. And the debt is sin. And just like the parable portrays, sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Jesus teaches that sin incurs a massive debt. Whether against yourself, a brother, a sister, or God, sin creates a chasm that no contribution from you can ever overcome. There's no offsetting the effects of sin. Some of us know the weight of debt. Some of us have been under extreme financial burden. Maybe you are in this room today. It has an oppressive feel to it. When Bailey and I graduated college, combined we had $38,000 in student loans. For some of us, it sounds like an exorbitant amount of money. For some of you, you're thinking, lucky, only 38, right? Like some of us got a degree in underwater basket weaving and a $100,000 student loan to show for it. But like we know what it feels like to live under that oppressive weight. And so we decide like we don't want to live under that weight anymore. And so very early in our marriage, we just decided let's buckle down. Let's put all the extra money that we have toward this goal. And in about two and a half years, with a few sidetracks along the way, we slowly chipped away at it. And we were able to get out from under our student loan debt. And man, there's just this, like, this weight that rolls off your shoulder. I can do anything. Like, what do you want to do? You want to go climb Mount Everest? Let's do it. We don't have this money anymore. There's this freedom that comes from being out from under the weight of debt. But there is no amount of chipping away at your debt of sin that even makes an ounce of difference. The point of Jesus naming such an exorbitant amount 10,000 talents, is that it was impossible to overcome. Your outstanding balance to God can never be overcome. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you back everything, which is impossible. The servant's master took pity on him, and he canceled the debt. He forgave the debt and let him go. Now, the, the tense of this verb here, when it says that he begins pleading, is the imperfect tense, which means this was continual. So it's not a half-hearted moment between the servant and the king. This is, he's laid bare, totally out of options, no other place to turn. He just begins to plead his case and will not stop until he is heard. That's the kind of repentance that we see before the king, and he continues this plea, have patience with me, have patience with me, have, have patience with me. And the king releases him completely. There is no more debt, nothing hanging over his head. He was free. There are no conditions placed on the compassion of the king. It's simply given. So it's more than mercy. This is grace because mercy would have met an extension of time. He would have, have granted him some more time to try to come up with the money. Mercy is to not give someone what they deserve. He deserved to go to jail because of an outstanding debt. But the king doesn't just grant mercy. He gives grace. Grace means the debt no longer exists. Grace means that you're given what you don't deserve. In a lot of the, the headings of our Bible, this parable is listed as the unmerciful servant. 
And I, I find it fascinating that I mean, we, we know how this story continues, that the one who had received such grace couldn't even extend a little bit of mercy. Tim Keller says that, that forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. I'm forgiving instead of retaliating. I'm, I'm choosing to bear the cost. The debt didn't disappear. The weight of that debt now laid on the shoulders of the king. Forgiveness means moving the cost from the perpetrator to yourself. And, and the Greek word in our translation today, it said canceled. It's the word forgive. It's the Greek word aphemi, which means to let go, to release, to abandon. And the, the word here, when it says 10,000 bags of gold, is the word talent. It's a word we find various places in Jesus' parables and teaching. And talent isn't a monetary denomination. It is a measurement of weight. And whether that was gold or silver or copper, you measured the weight of something and that was a talent. Depending on the metal, it was 60 to 90 pounds. The, the total weight of this man's debt would have been 204 metric tons. If the talent was a measurement of gold, it would have been about 6,000 denarii. A denarii is a day's wage. And so if you're doing the quick math in your head, the amount of this man's debt was 60 million denarii. And at one denarius a day, it would have required him 164,000 years to repay. If we're to put that in our terminology today, the great state of Kansas has a minimum wage of $7.25 an hour. We're a little behind a few other states uh, around us, but if we're to just take that wage and we're to place that in this story, the monetary equivalent of his debt was $3,480,000,000, an unfathomable amount of money. There's a big difference between a million and a billion I don't know if you've ever seen kind of those graphs or scales or memes that point out the, the stark contrast, but like we throw those terms around million and billion and we think they're somewhere close, they're not. Uh, a million seconds is about a week and a half, 11 days. A billion seconds is 32 years. I have yet to be alive for a billion seconds. If I gave you $5,000 a day for six months, you'd be a millionaire. If I gave you $5,000 a day for 548 years, you'd be a billionaire. This man's debt, $3,480,000,000 in our terms today. Josephus in Antiquities reports that the annual salary of Herod the Great the ruler of that time, the annual salary was 900 talents. And there was likely no one who made more money than him. But the price of a slave at that time usually ranged from 500 to 2,000 denarii. So here's a man who had just been forgiven this massive debt. The weight of which he felt. The release of which he experienced. And what does he do with his freedom? Here's how Jesus continues in verse 28. But when that servant he went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins or a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. 
pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and they went and told their master everything that had happened. This man did owe him money. But if we go back to the contextual clues about such a large amount and and we, we think, okay, the only way he could have gotten here is if he was tax farming. The only reason that this other man probably owes him money is because this is one of the men that he was taxing. And this debt that was owed to the king to try to repay him for the money he thought he could tax out of these people had disappeared. And so there is really no legitimate reason for him not to go and approach this other man. His demand of other people should have been dismissed at the moment that his debt was. And whereas the debt that he had just been forgiven was so large to an extent it could scarcely be computed, this debt was certainly small enough to be understood. A hundred denarii is a hundred days of wages. Not a small amount of money by any means, but possible. Certainly attainable. And you'll notice that this second servant gives the same plea. Please just give me more time. Be patient with me. And in this instance, that would have actually been possible. With some more time, he could have come up with the amount of money to pay back the debt that he owed. This man's debt was a mere trifle compared to what had just been forgiven. There is this difference that whereas the first man's undertaking was one he could not possibly have fulfilled, this was more realistic. And the word here, I looked this up this last week in my study, where it says he choked him grabbed him by the throat and began to choke him. The Greek word, panigo. And the literal translation, in fact, the the most often what this term represent is to cause plants to die. To cause plants to die. And I I don't want to read too much into the parable of Jesus here, but I couldn't help but think back to the beginning of our series broadcast and think about the parable of the sower. And you'll remember that there was some seed that was scattered along the soil, and that Jesus says the deceitfulness of wealth and the worries of this life choked the life out of that plant. And what I find fascinating about this moment is that although this first, he's not able to live in the forgiveness he's been given, and therefore he's not able to extend forgiveness and live free from the debt owed to him. Then the master called the servant You wicked servant, he said, I I canceled all of that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The king says that it's necessary for forgiveness to be extended. For the forgiven man to also forgive others. You also should have had mercy is what the king says. And he's speaking not just to that specific action, but now his attitude. Actions can be isolated, but attitudes are continuous. You should have been transformed by this moment in which all of the entirety of your debt was released from you. And so now he's experiencing torture. The greatest of which is a knowledge that he could have lived free while choosing to subject himself again to torment. So the question for us today is, why is forgiveness so hard? 
why is it so hard to forgive? Tim Keller just wrote a book called Forgive. It's really good. I, I would recommend it to you if you're interested in this more. But he says this, some believe that harboring anger against one who has wronged you is a way of making them pay for what they've done to you. But in reality, it is simply allowing what they've done to you to continue to hurt you. You may have heard Marion Williamson's famous quote, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Keller says in his book that our culture, more than anything, values individual autonomy. The highest good is what's good for self. The good of the individual. And so we must parade and promote our individual causes in order to find value and meaning. We throw around things like rights and freedoms and my truth, and they're all tossed around precisely because we see ourselves as what matters most. Here's the wound that I wear, and the world needs to see it because my wound is what makes me matter. This is not how all cultures have functioned, but it's certainly how our culture has functioned in its hyper-individualistic cancel culture atmosphere. And Keller says there are three types of grace, the first of which Dietrich Bonhoeffer has, has talked about and written about, called cheap grace, non-conditional, but it's, it's not as, as it sounds, because true forgiveness does not ignore the wrong. Cheap grace is to pretend like something never happened. That, that's not actually forgiveness. That's just choosing to ignore. True forgiveness does not ignore the wrong, but willingly incurs the cost. There's little grace or small grace, as he calls it, and this is very transactional. It's built on conditions. I will forgive you if, we find this to be true a lot of times in our personal relationships, maybe a disagreement between a husband or a wife. Maybe you and a child that haven't been reconciled in years. Maybe you and a boss or an employee or however it might work. I will forgive you if. Here's the hoop you have to jump through. And so we make the grace small by putting conditions on it. And then there's the most popular version, and that's just no grace at all. Non-forgiveness is the most popular form of forgiveness in our society today. And this one is celebrated and lauded because it once again elevates the individual. Here's my hurt, and my hurt is what makes me matter. And so if I forgive my hurt, I don't have my hurt to hold on to anymore and show the world how important I am. And Keller says, if all that matters is individual autonomy, then forgiveness and reconciliation, which are designed to foster community, are of little importance. See, th this way of self, this insistence on unforgiveness, is nowhere in the Scriptures. And friends, don't, don't hear me wrong today. Don't hear me say that what has happened to you is of little importance. That it hasn't hurt you or harmed you. That there is no justice for you. That you should just forget about it and let it go. Don't hear me say that. That is not the teaching of Scripture. No, forgiveness means to look the hurt right in the face and say, this has hurt me. And I'm willing because Jesus holds on to the hurt that I have caused him that I don't have to. I'm willing to incur the cost of this debt between you and I. It's choosing to be someone who looks at others as valuable as yourself. In our reverse honor culture today, virtue is awarded to those with the greatest hurt, and therefore forgiveness is unvirtuous. 
We could never imagine forgiving someone because of fear of public shame and ridicule. There was an Amish community on the East Coast that was ravaged by a mass shooting. Ten children were shot in a schoolhouse. Five of them died. And the Amish community responded with such incredible compassion and forgiveness. In fact, mere hours after the crime was committed, many members of their community was with the family of the shooter in their home, praying with them, singing with them, forgiving them. And so scholars became curious, how is it that this kind of community can offer forgiveness so quickly? And what they discovered is that Americans are committed to self-realization, self-assertion, and have a profound sense of entitlement. They believe that their happiness, interests, and needs always come first. It's what makes forgiveness so hard in our culture today. And so God, the king, sends this first servant into torment and punishment. And by the fact that he refuses to forgive, he's inviting the king to withhold forgiveness from him. This is the part of the parable that makes us squirm a little bit. It just seems a little bit harsh, like, whoa, Jesus, are you for real? Are you serious about this? This man, just, he just had his debt forgiven. Certainly the king can look upon him with grace again. And, and, and so we have to realize here, his judgment is not against the man's debt, but his dealings with others. It's not his sin, but his failure to share the grace given to him that brings the wrath upon him. The kingdom cannot be present if evil is not being named and defeated. There is no judgment. If there is no judgment, salvation is not needed. If there is no judgment from a king, what is the point of this saving grace that he provides anyway? And so as we read this parable of Jesus, as we think about these situations of forgiveness and debt that we both owe him and has been incurred against us, we have to understand that the ethic of the teachings of Scripture, of the teachings of Jesus, is one of response and reflectivity. Responding to God's prior action and reflecting on God's character. The kingdom comes with limitless grace in the midst of an evil world, but it also comes with limitless demands on that grace. What has happened to you is no small thing. Man, I have been on the receiving end of some big things. Not making light of anyone's hurt or hardship, what I'm inviting you to do is as you hold on to Jesus and the weight of your debt has been transferred onto him, hold on to someone else and allow their debt to be transferred onto him too. That's forgiveness. In 2018, the whole country really, but especially the city of Dallas, was rocked by a shooting that happened. An off-duty police officer had just come home from a long shift. Her name was Amber Geiger, and she opened the door to what she thought was her apartment to find a man sitting on her couch watching television, at which point she drew her weapon and shot him. That man was in his apartment, and Amber was mistaken. His name was Botham Jean. And in the trial for Amber Geiger, Botham's brother Brant took the stand. And in a stunning display of grace, says this. I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. 
And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. to cut the video short because that hug goes on for well over a minute and a half in which there's a few separations and another scene. I don't think I could have done what Brant did. I think if somebody killed my brother whether they meant to or not I have a really hard time telling them about the love of Jesus in that moment. And Brant models so well what Jesus talks about in this parable. I'm not going to hold this against you not going to live with a debt between us. I'm going to shorten that gap. I'm going to introduce you to the man who can hold the debt for both of us, who can hold the hurt for both of us. Kingdom citizenship is not predicated on your ability to earn your standing, but simply to extend the invitation. Marcus Borg says that mercy marks the ministry of Jesus and it must mark the lives of his followers. Ernst Kassaman says, when you get the gift, you get the giver who will not let you go your own way. And here's the thing. We, we want to assume that sin happens in isolated incidents, specific actions that need isolated. Jesus instructs more of an interconnectedness. Sin is not a momentary lapse in the judgment of an otherwise good guy. Sin is a disease that plagues all people. It does not need to be isolated, it needs to be eradicated, and the antidote is the gracious love of God our Father, who gave his son Jesus, who bears all sin, both sin that you've committed and the sin committed against you. He grants his release from this disease freely. 
And you and I are not at liberty responding to it in the only way he's asked us to. Mercy is not effectively received unless it is shown because God's mercy transforms. If God's mercy does not take root in the heart, it's not experienced. Forgiveness not shown is forgiveness not known. This vertical relationship between you and God, God who only ever gives grace and good things to you, his only ask is that what was received vertically is extended horizontally. That as you've been transformed by God's kindness towards you, it would transform the way you extend kindness to others, no matter the offense. Keller says that the place that we most often see a true lack of transformation in the life of the Christian is in the horizontal relationship. Love this thought from Warren Wearsby. Forgiveness is like air in your lungs. There's only room for you to inhale the next lungful when you've just breathed out the previous one. If you insist on withholding it, refuse to give someone else the kiss of life they may desperately need, you won't be able to take any more for yourself, and you'll suffocate very quickly. Whatever the spiritual, moral, and emotional equivalent of lungs may be, we may sometimes say the heart, but that, of course, is another metaphor as well. It's either open or closed. If it's open, able, and willing to forgive others, it will also be open to receive God's love and forgiveness. If it's locked up to the one, it will be locked up to the other. So friends, I I want you to grab your little garden sign again and hold on to it. And I I want you to to look at your name. Just, Just look at it as I share a few closing thoughts. Man, I don't need to... I don't need to tell you, there's some bad people in here. There's some people who have hurt others in ways that we would never want to tell other people about. There's some things that you've done to other people that we would never want broadcast anywhere. And here's the good news. Here's the 10,000 talents weight of good news that you need to hear today. God is way better at saving than you are at sinning. Some of y'all didn't hear that very well. I think I need to say it again. God is way better at saving than you are at sinning. Can we get a little Pentecostal in here? Get an amen? Yeah. Praise God. He is way better at saving than you are at sinning. And so there's not a person in this room who does not freely receive God's gift. It's his to give. And you don't get to opt out. He forgives you. so as we look at this, we also know there's been some things done to us, some hurt caused to us, some sin against us that, man, we, we have a hard time letting go of. So as you, as you think about this and what God's growing in you as he's building his kingdom here, I just want you to hear this. You, you're not what your coach has said about you. You're not what comments online say you are. You're not your failure. You're not your addiction. You're not your abortion. You are not your divorce. You are not your job loss. You're not your abusive relationship. You are not the hurt that you've caused other people. You're not all the things your cruel father said you were. You're not your fear. You are not what you did last night. You're a child of God. So are they.